Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. I am Connor Orr, alongside my esteemed colleague, SI senior writer, Jenny Vrentis. And uh, we only have one week left in an NFL football season that I'm not going to lie, Jenny, and I guess anyone who listens to this podcast knows didn't think was going to happen. Like, did not think we were going to get here. Did not think that we would be talking about the playoffs. Did not think that we would be considering whether Adam Gase should be entered into coach of the year uh, race right now, uh, given that the Jets are just absolutely unstoppable. All weird things that we didn't see coming, but we're right around the corner from a socially distant playoffs, a socially distant Super Bowl. I mean, the whole thing is just... uh, the spectacle and the specter of it from our end is is sort of weird. It's 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 strange to consider where we're headed. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've discussed all year, there's just been a lot of parts of the season that were hard to get your head around, uh, hard to reckon with. Even this week, Gary and I discussed a little bit on the Monday morning podcast as well uh, that it was somewhat odd. The NFL went ahead with the Browns game, uh, despite several players being out as close contacts. So every week, it seems, has brought some kind of challenge related to COVID that is something that the NFL is pushed through. They were insistent on having a complete season. Here we are on the verge of week 17, and we have been honest about our feelings that many of the decisions uh, we felt conflicted about, but here we are. The playoff picture is shaping into view, and we have uh, an exciting postseason, I suppose, ahead of us. Yeah. Hopefully everyone uh, who is listening, if you celebrated the holidays, had a great um, holiday and uh, safe travel and all that fun stuff. Uh, In the Northeast, we did get a little bit of a white Christmas. We had to wait for it, um, but at night, so it was nice to kind of have that little uh, snowy feel and then, uh, you know, uh, watch, uh, you know, try to shovel your old old parents' driveway like you do, uh, did when you were 16 or 17. So that was, uh, that was fun. But, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, the topics here. And, uh, the first one, we'll just, uh, bounce right off of what we were talking about with, uh, Adam Gase, uh, only uh, kind of facetiously saying he should enter the coach of the year race. But I don't know. Uh, the Cleveland Browns <laughs> fell to the suddenly unstoppable New York Jets on Sunday, having their chances of reaching the playoffs, according to 538. Now their dream season comes down to a game against their heated division rival Steelers for a shot at their first postseason berth since 2002. Um A lot of their fans are still pretty uh, even keeled about this, which surprises me given their future here. But uh, Jenny, I don't think I think out of all the teams, statistically, they have the worst chance of kind of getting in now of all the teams in the hunt. Yeah, they're in a difficult position, and it seemed as though a win against the Jets was going to be an easy hurdle to clear, but get the news on Saturday that most of their wide receiving core is suddenly out for the game after a week of practice. Somewhat similar to the situation that the Broncos were in a couple weeks ago. Many of the players were identified as close contacts, so you're kind of thrown into the situation where you have to make the best of it and move forward with what you have. They called up some players from the practice squad. And they almost won the game. They had a chance to win the game. Baker Mayfield loses the ball on a fourth and one. And 
the Jets come away with with another win. The suddenly resurgent Jets, who may be on their way to rebounding to nine and seven next season, Connor, <laughs> getting a a lot of seven and nine, excuse me, getting a lot of momentum. But um, but yeah, it was a weird game because this season compliance or in some cases luck with COVID-19 protocols or COVID-19 cases, uh, because as we know, it's it's a mixture of things. You, you need to be compliant with the rules, but you're also people who work for NFL teams are normal members of the community who encounter uh, the virus as many people do across the country. So there are situations that come up and they found themselves in a situation where the Browns were at a disadvantage because of several key players being out due to the protocols. And this is the weirdness of this NFL season. Uh, Again, as we said at the top of the show, Connor, this weirdness that we've both kind of struggled to get our heads around. Um, And Baker Mayfield made no excuses after the game. I I did think his comments, I I saw that he only kind of answered one question, then he gave a long statement a little bit um but what he said was it wasn't on the guys that were called up he had a chance to win the game he didn't make the play he put it all on on himself which i thought was what a leader should do but yeah they are uh they're in a tough spot um at this point um certainly had a chance to have this long-awaited moment for the franchise uh so it was definitely a letdown yeah, I I don't know. It's 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 a weird situation where I have had heard a lot of Browns fans saying that well, you know, it, we didn't lose this game. The protocols forced us to lose the game and and everything like that. But this this is a bad Jets team. It's a bad Jets team without um sure, sure with a little bit of momentum, but you know, they, they've already fired their defensive coordinator. They're sort of packing it in for next year, and I think you still have to win that game. Uh, you know, you still had your two top tight ends who Baker Mayfield throws the ball a ton to anyway you had Mm -hmm. the best running back tandem in the league you still had a really good defense and I don't want to take anything away from the Jets either because I think that that was a spirited performance by them just like we saw last week against the Rams and it's just um you know it's so Brownsian you know this is a game that you had to win and uh and you didn't do it and a lot of people are saying well the Steelers have already clinched their division and you know their spot there is is secure but I don't think if I'm if I'm Pittsburgh, after all that they've been through this season, all the rescheduling they've had to do, all the loopholes that they've had to jump through, I think this team wants to play, and I think they want to bury the Browns um, in the season ender because they haven't been playing well lately anyway, and I think they want to use that as a springboard into the playoffs. So I would see the Browns uh, as a team that's in a lot of trouble right now. Yeah, I I think that's a good assessment, Connor, because the Steelers really wasn't until the second half against the Colts that we saw a team that looked like someone who could be a factor in the playoffs. You know, the the past few weeks, it's been this team that's a shell of itself. The offense wasn't taking risks. They were Ben Roethlisberger looked his age, but they were also calling a game plan that seemed to be taking into the fact that or taking into account the fact that he is older. Um, It just didn't look like anything was working. The defense was really showing the after effects of the loss of Bud Dupree and Devin Bush. Um, But they came alive in the second half of that game against the Colts. And I don't think the Steelers can afford to kind of coast in week 17, given the fact that they're still kind of trying to still climb their way out of that, that three game rut. Yeah, I, I I was asked this um, elsewhere um, this morning 
um, uh, you know, some pretty intense breakfast chatter over here at the Ore House. But um, do you still view the Steelers as a team that can go deep into the playoffs after what you saw there? And I don't know. Do you think that they're this is a team that a couple weeks ago destroyed the Browns at the height of that defense that you that you wrote about. I mean, do you still feel like that's the team that we're seeing right now? I still have doubts about the Steelers heading into the postseason. I think what we saw them do in the second half of the Colts game is what they need to do to win games in January. But just trying to think about that team hanging with the Chiefs and Certainly the Chiefs had a little bit of a dud themselves against the Falcons on Sunday, but it's just hard to imagine them competing with a a team like the Chiefs at this point. Um, And I I think, you know, the defense will, will, is getting better, showed that it can get better after some of those losses, but you really can't understate the loss of Bud Dupree. I think when you have both him and Watt coming off opposite edges they play off each other and they make each other better and and they really are both factors in that ferocious pass rush rush and it's it's true so many places that you need multiple players up front to kind of enhance the ability of the others and so that was just I think one of the toughest blows for Pittsburgh this year yeah if you're a Browns fan uh, what do you think about uh, 2020. And I, I would say that my point there is there was probably similar optimism in 2007 when you had Romeo Cornell and you won 10 games and you didn't go to the playoffs. And then it was another 13 years before the franchise was relevant again. And I have to imagine if you're a Browns fan, that sticks in the back of your mind somewhere. Now, this rebuild seemed very methodical. I think Paul DePodesta has done a really good job. I think everything seems to have happened on purpose a little bit. And this team, you know, they're not being gutted in free agency next year. They're very young. Uh, I think all the things that you would want from a good franchise. But does that thought linger in the back of your mind that, uh-oh, you know, is this kind of our best chance? Because the division is not getting any worse around them either. Yeah, it's a really good question because there have been so many encouraging things and it's just Kevin Stefanski's first year and he did it without a normal offseason. And so there's a lot of reasons to have optimism. And Baker Mayfield has played well in this offense. It's a it's a really well designed offense that seems like it can continue to grow over the next few years. But the inability to close out a season despite good signs is always a concern and it's always something that has to linger in Cleveland that optimism always at some point wanes right and so until you can see that through and end up playing a game in January I think that is always going to be going to be lingering yeah all right uh, I wrote this uh, this topic number two especially for you so uh, let's see what uh, let's see what we have here all right Connor Topic number two. Speaking of bad football, the Jacksonville Jaguars have secured the number one pick and a likely future with Trevor Lawrence. Despite Jenny's hatred of Jacksonville. Oh, that's great. The Jaguars spotted cats and other jungle cat related accoutrements. Can this work or are the Jaguars destined to be a second tier franchise forever? Okay, Connor. All right. I mean, you're being a little tough on me, deservedly so. Uh, I understand. Anthony, who is one of our most loyal listeners and yes. regularly writes in, 
felt that we betrayed him. Specifically, I betrayed him with my assessment that I would rather see Trevor Lawrence playing for the big market Jets than the small market Jaguars. And Anthony graciously extended an olive branch over email. I should have been the one extending the olive branch. I did not in any way mean to diminish Jacksonville as a franchise, <laughs> but they've got some 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 problems or issues that we detailed last week. So do the Jets. I live in the New York area. I It would have been fun to have Trevor Lawrence here, be able to go to games, watch him. So I, I admittedly am biased, Connor. So... Um, but, but I love cats, you know, I had a cat named Al for, for over a decade and Al was a fantastic (laughs) cat. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of cats, but as for the question of whether it can work, I just think there's so many factors that have to work around a quarterback. I was thinking a lot about Andrew Luck and he was the last player. He's the reference points for Trevor Lawrence. This is the, yeah best consensus talent that we've seen since Andrew Luck, everyone says. Andrew Luck walked away from the game early, but that was after taking a a very um, uh, physical, you know, he he was took a beating. There's no other way to say it. I'm trying to avoid the word beating, but um, he just was, was, you know, constantly under siege. They they didn't build the team the right way. They built it from the outside in. That is speed players on the outside versus the inside out, which is where you start with the offensive line and then you build out from there. And as a result, Andrew Luck suffered a, an extreme physical toll that was a contributing factor in his decision to walk away from the game early. And the promise of Luck's career never culminated in a Super Bowl championship. So I think that is an example of you can have the great quarterback, but you have to have other things around him. You have to build the team around him the right way for that player and the franchise to ultimately have the highest level of success. Yeah, I I, uh, I think it's interesting, um, which I don't know if you noticed, by the way, but during the week this week, there was like uh, four or five uh, insider uh, NFL types who basically tweeted the exact same thing that Jacksonville is a desirable job with lots of cap space and Trevor Lawrence and patient owners. And it was funny that the, I don't know why that was being kind of uh, uniformly put out there at some, at one point or another, or, or for what reason it was being put out there like that. But I, I do think that there's some truth to that. I, I think that they're going to draw a big name head coach because it's such a no brainer to want to work with Trevor Lawrence. I think that the offensive line is better than what Indianapolis, had or um, you know maybe even not maybe not as good as what the Jets have I don't know I think that there's uh, maybe some interesting head-to-head comparisons you could have there but um, I think there's some okay skill position talent the defense is okay Um, you know I think a lot of things are just are fine Um, and I, I, I think that there's a chance that they could build something really exciting there but it's all gonna come down to the higher um, and I I don't know if I don't know. I I think that they're going to have a bigger challenge parsing through the people who just want to coach Trevor Lawrence versus the people who want to go down there and build a program. And, you know, can you tell the difference between the two and how do you delineate? And I think based on the attractiveness of the draft picks, the cap space, um, the quarterback, I think you're going to have to weed out a lot of operators and bad actors, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a great way to describe it, Connor. 
uh, using another example of recent NFL history, thinking a lot about the Chiefs and why things have worked with Patrick Mahomes there. Now, Mahomes was not this consensus prospect coming out of college. He had been in the air raid system. We all know the story. There were questions how well that would project to the NFL. Past air raid quarterbacks not working out certainly biased some teams against him. But he ends up at a team with seasoned head coach on his second Second opportunity, he knows exactly the way he wants to run a team, build a roster. Um, they started with John Dorsey, but then they moved to Brett Veach, who's Andy Reid's trusted confidant from Philadelphia. Um, so you talk about two people who are very aligned on on a team vision. You surround him with, you know, the line has had some issues this year, but for, you know, the last few years, it's been a solid line. He's had Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill and, Sammy Watkins and you know they they added running backs this year and so you just think about the situation and all of the factors that have gone into making Mahomes successful and it's just really hard to replicate like it's hard to get I mean first of all you probably won't be able to get a better offensive play caller in the NFL than Andy Reid so any other team would automatically be at a disadvantage there but you think about all of the factors around Mahomes that have contributed to his early success and the high expectations we have for the rest of his career. And it will be difficult to get all of those pieces to fall in place around Lawrence. Now, that's not saying that they won't. It's also not saying that a quarterback of Lawrence's caliber doesn't make up for other potential, you know, whatever holes you might have on the roster. When you have a great quarterback, they can account for some of those holes. But... Um, it remains to be seen what Jacksonville will be able to build around Trevor Lawrence, Connor. Yeah, I love the um, one of my favorite things now. Uh, I mean, when we started doing this podcast uh, in its previous itinerations as well, uh, there was always that spectacle of all the groomers, which are Gruden rumors um, around this time. And um and then he actually got a job and he actually is in the NFL. And now it's Urban Meyer, right? And, you know, every time like a plum job opens up, like like what Dallas was last year, what Jacksonville appears to be this year, all of a sudden that guy comes sauntering into the conversation uh, about, well, you know, maybe I would come out of retirement to do this. And, you know, it's just what I mean. Like if, if you're the Jaguars, it's going to be so hard to just – to eliminate the noise there and there's going to be so many people telling you that I'm the only one who can make this work when you're right it's just you need the, you know the only th guarantee there is to have the greatest play caller in NFL history and to have a, a loaded roster that was built from the ground up over the course of six years before the quarterback gets there and so it just doesn't exist and I think it's going to be a really hard time uh, it's gonna. I think they're gonna have a really hard time uh, siphoning through all the head coaching candidates. Um, I would not want to be the search firm that was paid six hundred thousand dollars to uh, to read uh, everybody's you know NFL.com hot coaching lists and uh, and throw a dart at a board. Oh wait, no, I'm kidding. Yes, I would like to do that. <laughs> but um, you know, it's uh, it's gonna be a tough one. Saunter was such a great verb there for Urban Meyer. He is such a saunterer this time of year, isn't he? Yeah. Just yeah. like, oh my That's gosh. So, and I mean, they haven't moved on from Marone yet, but the expectation is is they will. And I think the one thing you, you do think in this situation, 
is they probably will go with a head coach that has an offensive background. And I sort of hate this. We, we talk about this every year, Connor, hiring the, you know, upcoming play caller is not always the answer to the head coach situation, but it can be the answer. You know, Matt LaFleur has worked out well in Green Bay. Uh, it can be the answer if they have a plan for the whole team. And also, you know, if you have a player like Trevor Lawrence and you hire a coach with special teams or, or defensive experience and they sort of put the offense in the hands of the offensive coordinator, the risk is always the offensive coordinator leaves for another job and then you have to start over again. So in this case, if you're expected to use the number one pick on the premium passer, I do think you should go for the offensive head coach. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see uh, Interesting to see uh, what direction they go in there. Speaking of uh, highly drafted quarterbacks, we have some breaking news coming in for news topic number three. And uh, just as we started recording this podcast, Dwayne Haskins was released from the Washington football team this following uh, a difficult week where he was uh, spotted without a mask on in the company of uh, some entertainment. Uh, uh, there, he was fined forty thousand dollars for violating uh, COVID protocols and stripped of his captaincy. And then he was benched uh, during that decisive uh, game on Sunday where they could have won and cemented their uh, playoff spot. So Dwayne Haskins now a uh, free agent former Ohio State Buckeye. So, uh, listen, I I think that what I don't like is the sort of aggressive demonization of any young person who does something, you know, stupid. Uh, I think he's young, and he can certainly learn from his mistake, but this is a guy now that's probably going to have a really hard time catching on somewhere else and, and having the same opportunity that he did here in Washington. Yeah, and Ron Rivera makes the decision the the day after he had to yank Haskins. Um, the, the trust was eroded in the quarterback, both off the field and on the field. I mentioned this to Gary on the Monday morning pod as well, Connor, but the first signs that Ron Rivera was not sold on Haskins, I think, came in the spring. Uh, in an interview Rivera did that, that I was part of, he mentioned – that if training camp were somehow shortened and they wouldn't have enough time, he would be he. Kyle Allen would have a leg up um, on being the starting quarterback, and it's an interesting thing because you don't often hear that with a first round pick that he wouldn't be the guy, right? Even if your off season is shortened, even if you have less time with the players to teach a new system, he basically was saying Kyle Allen's familiarity with the offense that they would be running from their time in Carolina would give him a leg up in the competition. I thought that showed that the, the beginnings of a lack of confidence turns out that week one game against the Eagles from Haskins was fool's gold and it's not going to work out from, for him in Washington now. So you ask now what, and that's a good question, Connor. He needs to try to learn from what went wrong in Washington. We don't know all of the details. I'm sure there's a lot behind the scenes that will come out. I also have seen some reports today from ESPN. Uh, Diana Rossini was saying that the owner had been pushing for Haskins and the coaches at the time disagreed. And to her credit, I remember her reporting that at the time. There was a lot of reporting that this was the guy that Snyder was pushing for. Um the, the narrative around Haskins leading up to the draft was was interesting. There were certain people pushing that, oh, he was 
the clear number two quarterback um, on the yeah. board that year. And I do not recall hearing that from very many teams at all. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember hearing that Daniel Jones would probably go before him. Now, listen, Jones has had his issues in New York, and we don't know his future either. Uh, but Daniel Jones was the second quarterback off the board that year. Um following Kyler Murray. But I think there were a lot of questions about Haskins. And um, I'd like to look back at my notes and, and recall sort of wh- where some of those were coming from. But um, I, I don't think teams were as sold on him as maybe some people led us to believe, Connor. Yeah. I, and I remember, I, I think that I that was the year that I did the uh, mock draft for the magazine, which Please uh, uh, do yourselves a favor and never look back on that. That was uh, that was the year that Jenny won the mock draft competition and destroyed all of us. Um, but Haskins to fifteen to Washington just seemed to make so much sense at that point. Even then, um, because you know you're looking at all these teams at the top of the draft, and a lot of teams needed quarterbacks then. But he just you know didn't blow me away in college uh you know i think didn't really blow me away at the combine and i think like you said there's sort of a smell test there and it didn't pass it for me personally at the time and i'm sure for a lot of other people and all along you did hear those things like diana was reporting that you know snyder wanted a local guy you know you know and all this stuff and how it was going to look and how it was going to feel but you know this that's just another example of you know him meddling and making a horrendous decision that impacts the franchise's health moving forward. I mean, thank goodness they still had Alex Smith on the roster to be able mm-hmm. to get them this far. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I think it's it's a double-edged sword there. It's ownership meddling um, and drafting a guy that nobody's prepared to facilitate. You know, I'm sure that there is part of Haskins who probably felt unwanted since the minute he got there if the coaching staff didn't, didn't want to coach him and the second coaching staff didn't want to coach him. And, uh, you know, maybe that contributes to some of the decisions that you make down the road but at the same time uh if you were to tell me that oh he's going to be the first guy out of those three or four uh quarterbacks to get cut from that class would you be shocked and i i wouldn't say i was i would be shocked you know i think the circumstances that led to it might have been a little shocking but um you know i'm not surprised at all that this didn't work out for myriad reasons yeah and this is a pretty stunning turn of events to see a former first round pick get let go by the team that drafted him, even if there is a new regime uh, so early on. And we'll talk a little bit more about ownership later and um, the serious allegations regarding ownership. Um, And I I do want to make a distinction. I mean, here we're talking about on-field performance. We're talking about off-field, you know, poor decision-making. Certainly what's going on at the ownership level is – much more serious, but you can, we could talk about both things and both situations have been mishandled. And uh, now Haskins will really have to prove himself to another team that he deserves another chance. Man, he is so destined to be a Raider and it's not going to (laughs) help. It's not going to help. Mariota, get out of there while you still can, buddy. Save yourself. Um, All right, let's, uh, let's go to news topic number four. All right, this is a good one, Connor. Lots to discuss here. The playoff field heading into tonight's Monday night football game, we're recording on Monday afternoon, um, is as such. The AFC seeds one, Kansas City, two, Pittsburgh, three, Buffalo, four, Tennessee, five, Miami, six, Baltimore, and seven, Cleveland. 
In the NFC, the field looks as follows. One, Green Bay. Two, New Orleans. Three, Seattle. Four, Washington. Five, Tampa Bay. Six, LA Rams. And seven, Chicago. Connor, what stands out to you the most as we head into the all-important Week 17? Mitch Trubisky, he's still here, and he's doing it. (laughs) The Bears are uh, in the playoffs, which is uh, exciting. But I I think uh, what really stands out to me uh, after watching that uh, uh, very aesthetically pleasing Sunday night football game between the Packers and the Titans is just how good Green Bay looks, how deep they appear, uh, how relatively healthy they seem to be. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, we don't talk a lot about Matt LaFleur and how good of a job he's done there. Um, But more than that, I don't think we talk enough about the fact that this team could roll to a a Super Bowl. I mean, there is not a whole lot to me of, of, uh, of resistance in their path. You know, maybe you could say Tom Brady's been playing very well lately and and Tampa Bay certainly looms there in that fifth spot. We have liked Seattle um, all season and and they're embedded there in that number three spot. Russell Wilson can turn on and their defense is playing better finally. And New Orleans is New Orleans, but uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, Drew Brees um, is struggling a little bit, doesn't look completely healthy. Um, And I guess just sort of you know, maybe it was the primetime nature of it or the fact that, you know, sometimes you watch a team really religiously for a few weeks and then you kind of just, uh, you know, speed through the film a couple weeks. But Green Bay looks great. Like they look really, really good. Yeah, that was such a showcase of this team from the snow to the fact that a young running back racked up a bunch of yards to Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams just having this supernatural connection um that's probably the best connection between a quarterback and receiver in the league right now one question about that game connor my mother pointed this out like okay so at halftime they shovel the lines Mm -hmm. how did the lines stay so even like even as the players were running across them the areas where they shoveled to clear for the yard lines they they seemed like to stay pretty well in the grass. It wasn't as, the snow wasn't as mushed around as I thought it would be. That's a good point. Like you're saying like, how did the paint remain as as pristine oh, well, as it did? Or how did the, the areas that they cleared of the snow, you would have thought the other snow would have kind of like mushed over, but it was oh, yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty crisp lines there. I, I I don't know, random random sidebar, but- no, I, it's, I think it's a good point, and maybe you know, if you're in Green Bay, that's the kind of thing that you have, uh, you know, nine months of winter to think about all, all year. You know, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, I, if 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 one team had to be great at that, it would have to be the Green Bay Packers, right? Definitely, definitely. So I thought Green Bay had already clinched the number one seed, but they did not, which is bad news for Mitch Trubisky, Connor. That is the one thing that I will say. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bears to get in, to to stay in the number seven NFC seed, they would have to win at Green Bay or the Rams would have to win over Arizona. And that is also a question mark because of Jared Goff's thumb. So what stands out to me is, one, the Colts have fallen out of the picture. um, And there are a lot of AFC teams that could fill out the AFC playoff picture. This is one year where there actually are enough teams to fill out all seven slots, which I'm surprised that I'm saying, but there are seven teams from the AFC that we would 
be interested in watching (laughs) in the playoffs. You can't say the same for the NFC. Um, And the other thing that um, stands out to me is is the Rams that uh, they're at risk of not making the playoffs. They're they're in the the playoff picture now, but um, it's going to come down to week 17 and Jared Goff. um, We don't know what his status will be given the injury to his thumb. Yeah, that that and that could have been a topic on its own. I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see where they go from there and where they go beyond here. I mean, you know, could another quarterback play decently well in Sean McVay's system? And if that's the case, what does that say about Goff and you know all the kind of the lingering questions that we had about him? Um, but I, I find myself sort of irrationally excited about this year's playoffs. I mean, I you know this is a year that. Um, uh, I'm not going to be doing much traveling during the postseason. You know, normally at this time you start getting all fired up and mapping out your off season and or your postseason and figuring out how the heck you're going to get from Milwaukee to Green Bay through some Santa sleigh situation. But um, <laughs> I, I think this will be just a fun, from an aesthetically pleasing standpoint, uh, set of matchups. And I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if my Super Bowl pick has changed all that much. I was all in on the Seahawks. I still think that they could do it um, because everything ebbs and flows, right? I mean, th- maybe they're in a little bit of a down period right now, but that who's to say they can't become resurgent um, like they were at the beginning of the season. And, and maybe some of the teams that we think are playing really well have a bad week. We've seen the Chiefs. I mean, you mentioned that before. A couple weeks in a row now where it's been one-score games, it's been low-scoring output from the Chiefs, and they're still just kind of gutting out wins uh, and getting plays when they feel like it. But what if, you know, uh, they hit a bad day? So I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So I think this is going to be a good, uh, I think this is going to be a good playoffs field. Yeah. And I'm surprised that the flexed game wasn't Rams Cardinals. That's going to be an interesting game week 17. Uh, so the Rams can get in if they beat the Cardinals Um, And if the Rams lose, they will make the playoffs if the Bears lose to the Packers. Um, So there's a lot on the line with that game, but the NFL chose to flex a NFC East contest into that Sunday night <laughs> slot. So we clearly have, not uh, listener to of this show. So <laughs> we have uh, that to look forward to. And Connor wrote a very funny NFC East primer as a side note about uh, all of the funny things that have happened in the NFC East this season or absurd or uh, just really um, indicative of what the division has represented in 2020. <laughs> I tell you what, if the Cowboys end up sneaking in, somebody's going to have to interview that watermelon that Mike McCarthy smashed <laughs> to get them into the playoffs. You know? Oh, man. That's all really right. what it's all about. Speaking of end of season discussions, topic number five, Connor? Yeah. So I actually, while I was writing the topics, uh, got an email from uh, some of my favorite emails to get from our uh our friends at various uh, sports books and gambling sites that uh, said that Aaron Rodgers has actually just surpassed Patrick Mahomes in the 2020 MVP race. And it does seem like a two horse chase at this point, but do you feel like, you know, one or the other sticks out to you or that any outsiders merit any uh, consideration as we get deeper into the season here? Yeah, I was ready to write Patrick Mahomes on the ballot. I thought before this week that he was clearly the most valuable player. Uh, The Chiefs have been the consistently best team in the NFL. Uh, And it's hard to do that coming off a Super Bowl. They have maintained their momentum. And uh, 
I think that's why Andy Reid, as a side note, should be a coach of the year candidate. I was thinking about this a lot because I think we all always look for, for teams that make a big jump from one year to the next, but sustaining greatness is perhaps the hardest thing to do. And Andy Reid has done that with his club. But I will say this weekend changed my mind a little bit because the Chiefs had a little bit of a dud and the Packers went out with this masterful performance in the snow against the Titans. And I was just really reminded of how impressive Rogers' season has been. And uh, of course, an MVP vote is the composite of the year. But when you do get down to week 16, you are kind of going week to week. Uh, who's closing out the season strong? These games... Every game matters the same in theory, but these games have higher stakes when the playoff picture is kind of sorted out for you. And um, I just think that Aaron Rodgers has has risen to the moment on multiple occasions. So I I think it's 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 a tough decision between Mahomes and and Rodgers. I I wouldn't say that I'm considering anyone else at this point, but I I would I would say it's a tough pick, and I might be leaning Rodgers at this point. How about you, Connor? I just. I, I agree with you. I think that Rodgers is certainly uh, the favorite in my mind. And like Andy Reid, I think that, you know, Matt LaFleur should be getting a little bit of love in the coach of the year race, given how overlooked he was last year. And I think yeah. not a lot of people are kind of considering the body of work, the entirety of the body of work there. But there's just something about Derrick Henry that I feel like if we don't acknowledge it now, are not going to get the chance to kind of properly define his era there and, and you know we all thought he was going to slow down this year because of the massive workload he had the year before and if anything he's become even more efficient of a runner and I you know the only reason that I think it's good that we're talking about him is in that context is just that it it, it places more of an importance and, and a broader perspective on on what he's done and I mean that, that guy is just absolutely dominant and and carries so much of the rest of what Tennessee is trying to do along with him. And that's a guy, uh, certainly you wonder like how much worse would the Titans be without him versus how much worse would the Chiefs be if they played somebody else but had Andy Reid coaching them and all this other stuff. I, I don't know. I think it's just an interesting conversation to have. And uh, basically, I just want more people to talk about how awesome Derrick Henry is. That's all. And I do think that is why the Offensive Player of the Year category is important. Mm -hmm. MVP is so clearly weighted toward quarterback. And Offensive Player of the Year is often this kind of weird thing. Well, if I'm voting for a quarterback as MVP, why wouldn't I just vote them for Offensive Player of the Year? But I do think that category gives you the ability to honor another player whose contributions are really important and a running back or a receiver who might not get the same MVP consideration, but should be honored in another way. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll be a good, I, I think it would be interesting, right? If Aaron Rodgers is winning MVPs at this point, if the Packers are rolling towards the postseason, um, especially after the narrative that started at the beginning of the season, that they weren't doing enough to help him or, or, you know, weren't doing enough to, uh, to maximize his remaining window. And then all of a sudden one year less on his contract, another, uh, year until, uh, Jordan Love pops up and takes the, the mantle. And it's just, uh, you know, man, it's an interesting, uh, situation there almost to the point where, you know, you would wonder if, uh, you know, this is really his last big, good run in Green Bay. Not to say that they're going to move on from him this year, but is this the last time we see Aaron Rodgers um, in as good of a situation as he is now? 
Well, we could see some efforts to stoke that motivational fire a little bit, Connor. Mm-hmm. We could see some leaked stories about how impressive Jordan Love has looked running the <laughs> scout team or, you know, really has formed alliances with some of the younger practice squad receivers. Mm. I mean, I'm uh, I'm interested to see in the coming weeks, you know, I, I, I stand by my assessment, which I heard Collinsworth said on the broadcast, but we talked about this earlier weeks ago, Connor, that... Jordan Love gave Rodgers that little extra push this year. I mean, I know it's year two of Matt LaFleur's offense. I know there's growth expected, but you can't deny the fact that that gave him a little motivational boost. If you're Matt LaFleur and Brian Gutekunst, you draft another quarterback in the first (laughs) round. Exactly. Just do it every year. (laughs) (laughs) Just keep him angry and furious the whole time. I love it. I, I love it. Um, all right, uh, so let's get into uh, the predictive uh, element of this podcast, which is always uh, a hit or miss proposition um, in the Oracle. And uh, <laughs> for my Oracle uh, this week, I am going to say that I think the team that climbs out of the NFC East is going to be the Giants. I think it's for some reason, have a weird feeling that the Giants cl- crawl out of here. I think that Philadelphia has a lot to play for with Jalen Hurts. Mm-hmm. I think Washington, Jalen Hurts has the ability to kind of evade that pass rush and negate some of the best of what Washington can do to mess up your game plan. So that's kind of an interesting thing there. And I just, I, I don't know. I think that the Giants have an awful lot of intel on this Cowboys team. I think that they're going to have an opportunity to play at home. Something just tells me something weird's going to happen in that game. And if I had to pick right now which team I think is going to come out of that NFC East, I think it's I think it's going to be the Giants. I love that Oracle. This is an unusual situation in the NFC East. Only the Eagles right now are eliminated. And we have Washington playing the Eagles. If Washington loses to the Eagles, then it's the winner of Cowboys-Giants. So you're seeing an Eagles win and a Giants win, which would put the Giants in, which I think is a very reasonable scenario. So I I, I wrote this a couple weeks ago, and I did want to revisit it, um, uh, but was told that so few people cared about it a few weeks ago uh, that I shouldn't do that uh, from our editor and analytics expert, uh, Mitch Goldich. But... Uh, if you were the number five seed, which is right now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it was the Rams before that, which team do you not want to win that game? Like, which team do you not want to come out? Because I do think that there's an element of, not fear, but like, oh, God, we can't be the guys that lose to the, whoever comes out of the NFC. And I think it's possible. You know, anything is possible on any given Sunday. But if you're Bruce Arians, if you're Tom Brady, what's the one team that you don't want to see crawl out of that division? The Giants have been stout on defense, but I would say I would be more scared of Chase Young probably. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're Tom Brady. Especially if you're Tom Brady, exactly. So I would be scared of Washington's pressure. However, you know, the offense has been uninspiring all year. So that's that's a difficult one, Connor. Um, I I would rather watch the Giants in the playoffs. I think there's more interesting storylines. I think, you know, Joe Judge's first season, how he's navigated that, what's next for Daniel Jones. I, I think... The defense has 
Patrick Graham has done a really nice job coming up with game plans. So I, I think it would be a more interesting, interesting matchup. But I do think, you know, Washington's front would be something that would, uh, they would be interested in going after Brady. I think if I had to rank them one to three, if I, uh, if I'm Tampa Bay, I would probably, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think you have a stationary quarterback. Washington has a great pass rush. Uh, and if, especially if you can get Alex Smith in that game, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen. I think he could manage that uh, team to a victory quite easily. I mean, if it's whoever else they have on the roster at this point, then I don't think it's it's much of a concern. But I, I think Dallas is number two, if only because there's still a lot of really good skill position players on that team. And Andy Dalton is, again, like a, a guy who I guess, has never won a playoff game, but is just adequate enough to get you to where you need to go. And their defense is bad, yes. You know, there, there's a lot of things to consider there. But there was some moments where they looked really good uh, yesterday, too. And mm-hmm. I guess third would be the Giants. But, again, I think that all these teams have, like, a weird strength. They're not, complete by any stretch of the imagination, complete teams. But weird enough strengths where they could go in and upset somebody, which we've seen them all do at various points in the year. Washington beat Pittsburgh. Um Dallas has come out and played some good games. Uh, the Giants beat Seattle. Um, and so I think it's it's imminently possible that one of these teams could disrupt the field. And they played the Buccaneers pretty tight, too, tighter than we expected uh, mm-hmm. the Giants did. So, yeah, it, it could be a more intriguing matchup than uh, we're giving people credit for. But, Connor, Tom Brady would take issue with your assessment that he is a stationary quarterback, as we know. <laughs> I once called him an immobile vitamin salesman, and uh, it ended up on Patriots Reddit. And uh, but this was after he had signed with Tampa Bay, and a lot of people <laughs> thought it was funny. So I was I was happy about that because there's Good not timing. a lot of people, yeah, not a lot of people backing old old Tommy now and his uh, massive amounts of PPP loans. Uh, so let's hop into the uh, Frentis consensus, which is the. Uh, somebody said that uh, I, we're reading our um, reviews on iTunes, which you guys, thank you so much for doing that. We're going to do an episode with some of your oracles that you've left there too, which have been awesome, and we really appreciate that. Um, and please feel free to leave. Uh, you know, If you haven't left a review yet, just let us know what you think of the show. It helps other people find the program. It helps us be more easily searchable on different podcast um, host uh, platforms and stuff like that. So thank you for doing that. But I agree that uh, one of our reviewers called Jenny Ventus the heart and soul, the conscience of the show. And I think that is because of the Ventus consensus, which we all love very much. Consensus. This week, I want to urge everybody to place their focus on the reporting coming out of the Washington Post on Daniel Snyder and some of the allegations that have been made, not only against his franchise, but more recently, it came to light through the Post reporting that the team paid $1.6 million in 2009 to a former female employee who accused the owner of sexual misconduct, the alleged incident according to the post, occurred on Snyder's private plane on a flight returning from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. 
Now, Snyder called the allegations meritless in a court filing um, and said that a well-respected law firm investigated and found no evidence of wrongdoing. I'm reading from one of the Post's uh, editorials right now. But I have seen a lot of conversation regarding this. Uh, the focus has been shifted a little bit to the minority owners and what were their motivations in trying to make sure this information got out. Or There seems to be a lot of focus on minority owners coming together to push Snyder out. Um, I also saw some questioning of, well, when you sign a non-disclosure agreement, you're bound by that. And so why is this information coming to light and who's to blame? I think those focuses are in the wrong place. They don't matter. What should matter is the subject of the settlement. What should matter is how it was handled, what happened, getting to the bottom and getting the truth exposed as much as possible. Um, if people have motivations for information being released, that's fair to consider those. But what matters most is what the information includes and what Snyder's behavior was and why the settlement was struck and were there other settlements. I, I think that there, the, 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 there has been a shift away from what really matters and what's pertinent here. And this is the first time that Snyder's con conduct has been immediately implicated, directly implicated. Other things happened under his watch. Maybe he signed off on things. Maybe he was involved um, in a more tangential way. This is a claim filed directly against him. And so I think that's what's important here. And the NFL is supposed to do a full, unbiased investigation. Um, the, the, the Washington football team when the Post initially had its reports about sexual harassment within the organization this summer, uh, Daniel Snyder promised that investigation to be done by the team. Then the NFL took over control of that. Um, and so we have to hope that the truth comes out and that the focus is where it should be. What Snyder's behavior was, uh, what the extent of the allegation of wrongdoing was, and how Snyder has allowed the other behaviors that were alleged to occur under his watch. And then when you have all that information, the NFL has to make a decision on if this is a person who should continue to own an NFL team. But I have been a little bit frustrated by some of the focus on all the other things around this rather than what is the central, most pertinent issue. Yeah, I mean, who, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it would just be who outside of lawyers who are kind of obsessed with the inside baseball aspects of a non-disclosure agreement, who cares about, you know, how the information got out there? I totally agree. The fact that this thing exists in the first place is, is, is valuable information. And, you know, we've seen the, uh, we've seen the NFL drag their feet on investigations into alleged misconduct before, especially when it involves an owner um, and how serious they're willing to be because they all know um, kind of where their bread is buttered here. But I think that this is a good chance for them to finally come in and do something good uh, for the league to, to show that they can can actually complete uh, an investigation of this magnitude and, and dig into something like this. But uh, who knows? Uh, but you're right. It's just uh, it's just a strange framing of the situation. It's an odd thing to care about why the information has come to light. I mean, the reason that a free press exists in society is for moments like this anyway. So, you know, if the information has gotten out there, it's because it needs to be out there and it's worth um, digesting. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't make much sense to me either.
And often NDAs are entered into in very unbalanced situations. It's a person who is bringing a claim against their employer and they don't have a lot of power in that situation. Uh, they're often coerced to sign. Sometimes their own lawyer may coerce them to sign. They feel they may have no other options. There is not a good procedure in place for um you know, seeing these kinds of complaints through. So settlement may be your best way to get it done quickly. And then as a, as a result of that settlement, you're forced to sign an NDA. That doesn't mean this is a good practice. And if somebody has the courage to speak up or share information, or in this case, it may not have even been the person who signed the NDA. It may have been people in the organization who were troubled by this conduct. But what matters the most is the conduct that took place, getting to the bottom of it, shining a light on as much of that as possible, sharing the truth. Um, certainly that's what the the women uh, who worked for Harvey Weinstein and also actresses who worked with him, certainly that's what they did. Um, I think it takes a lot of courage if, if there is such an NDA in place um, to sort of say, you know what, this behavior is wrong and it should come to light regardless of the legal agreements. So yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that's our take on that, Connor. I totally agree. I'm uh, I'm on board 100% on this, and you know, like I said, I think it's a good uh, good chance for the NFL to do some actual non-biased investigate uh, investigate investigatory work. Did I say that right? Um, that sounds and, good to me. And uh, you know, and show us that you know, because I do think that there's um, you know, going back to some of the other high-profile cases involving owners, and I don't want to lump in uh, you know this case with any other cases that have happened in the past, but just in general, there's been a disillusionment, certainly from the player side, to say you know all the stuff that happens to us when you know we commit even the most minor of offenses, and these owners are out here doing all this stuff, and and not Nothing happens to them, and I do think that that leads to um, uh, sort of an unhealthy balance and and uh, work relationship there. So I don't know. I think it's a it's a chance for them to do some uh, do some good work here. Absolutely. Well, thanks everybody for listening this week and all year. There's still one more week of the NFL season, but 2020 is coming to a close, and this has been a long trying year for a lot of people. And one constant has been your listenership, and we are very mm-hmm. grateful for. Those of you who tune into the Weekside podcast every week, we really enjoy making it every week along with our producer, Shelby, and uh, we're grateful for all the people that uh, keep coming back. Yeah, thank you guys. All right. The, the Weekside podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.